I'm Rosella Mosby. We are vegetable growers in the middle of an urban, rural interface, home to over 4 million people near Seattle. And you are listening to the Vance Crow Podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm glad you're here. This week's interview is with Dr. Brittany Kennedy, a small animal veterinarian from the St. Louis area. Dr. Kennedy came as a friend of a friend. I had actually never met her until she showed up at the front door of the podcast studios. And so I had no idea where this conversation was going to go. I had checked out her Instagram, which is filled with wonderful pictures of her with dogs and cats and goats and traveling all over the world. But I had no idea what her personal personality was going to be like and really how candid she would be. And as a person that's doing interviews, I'm always very, very reluctant to interview somebody that I've never even met or heard their voice. And it's because sometimes people have an expertise, but their ability to get it out in a relatable way is limited and it makes the conversation more difficult than it necessarily has to be. But that was not the case with Brittany Kennedy. She came in gregarious and excited and happy and yet was completely willing to talk about really controversial subjects in her area. We ended up talking about which kind of pet foods does she trust? How are human beings dealing with things like immunizing their pets when there's a fear of vaccines growing and spreading in the world? And we talked about the future of veterinarian medicine and what goes on in the mind of a person that is asked to care constantly for other people's animals. And it really marks up their heart, kind of hurts them. And she calls it compassion fatigue and what weight that is putting on people that are in the profession. The interview was fun and exciting and very fast moving, but you're going to get in about an hour and 15 minutes and you're going to notice that we wrap it up. We end the interview. But there's still a lot of time left. And what happened was we get to the end and Dr. Kennedy said that she would be willing to try out this new VR set that I'm borrowing from my buddy Travis Liebig, president of St. Louis Bank. And uh, and she tried it out and, and had a great experience. I even got a little bit of film of her kind of uh, ambling around in this new virtual reality world. But then when we got done, I realized, because I pulled up Twitter, that before she had showed up, I had asked Twitter, hey, do you have any questions that I should ask a small animal vet? So while she was exploring in VR, I opened up Twitter and realized, whoa, there was an explosion of questions. People from all over the United States vegans to cattle ranchers and everything in between were asking questions of the small animal vet. So we actually sat back down. We talked about her experience with virtual reality, and then we went through some of the questions. I'd never done anything like this before, but it was such an entertaining and engaging experience that I'm really glad to share it here. So I'm going to head into the interview. If you missed last night's uh, book club where we were reviewing All Quiet on the Western Front, don't worry about it. I'll probably post that interview here as soon as I can get the data together. But if you want to join February's book club, this month we're going to be reading a book called The True Believer by Eric Hoffer. Now, The True Believer is a book about how mass movements get started, who joins them, and what does it take to make that motion of joining a group move into the world of mass movement. It is a fascinating read. I had read it uh, probably 15 years ago, always held it in my head is one of my favorite books, if not my all-time favorite book, but had never gone back to revisit it. And now revisiting it 15 years later, it speaks to me in a way that it had not spoken before. I see what they're saying about how these movements get started in a way that I didn't before. And that may be because of my own personal experience, but I also think 
that you are going to see this too, because I think we've seen mass movements growing um, much more rapidly and in a much bigger way than we had maybe in in earlier in our lives. So I hope you check out that book. It is The True Believer by Eric Hoffer, not to be confused with the Nicholas Sparks book. We're going to head into this interview with Dr. Brittany Kennedy. I really hope you enjoy it. And if you're interested in following her on Instagram, she has a fantastic Instagram. It's just Dr. Brittany Kennedy. One final note, if you've never watched the YouTube channel of, of the podcast, this may be the one that you want to flip over and try it. I took some video of Brittany actually doing the VR and watching somebody interact when they've got the head screen on and they're kind of moving their arms around. It's really interesting and it will probably signal to you that this is a big deal. If you've never seen anybody inside of a VR headset, you really should because you'll see that they are completely taken over by this new world that they're living in inside of that headset. So if you've never checked out the podcast on YouTube, check it out. It's just Vance Crow. And uh, I hope to see you there. So thanks for joining. I'm so glad you're here. And let's head on over to the interview. Brittany Kennedy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So this is one of the firsts for me. I did not know you at all. And actually, the person that referred to me to you, I barely knew either. But I actually met your sister at a tech event here in St. Louis. It was St. Louis Bank was sponsoring this um, kind of launch code event, which is this group that teaches people how to code. And your sister was there because she's highly into the world of tech here in St. Louis. She was really, really interesting, very sharp. And I was like, instantly, you should be on the podcast. <laughs> and then she got really bashful. And she said, uh, no, that's not really my thing. But then all of a sudden, she lit up and she said, you know who you should talk to instead is my sister. And that is you, yep. a small animal vet here in St. Louis. So welcome to the podcast. You're the first uh, veterinarian I've ever had on. Thank you for having me, Vance. It's an honor. So what uh, what does a small animal vet do all day? Um, basically, I diagnose, treat, and care for animals. Um, a lot of people think that I play with puppies all day, which I do love. It's a uh, definitely part, a perk of the job. <laughs> um, but basically the animal doctor. That's what I am. And did you know from a very young age, I want to go be a veterinarian? I did. Yeah. So it was kind of like my dream my entire life. And, um, I, in high school, I actually started shadowing veterinarians and just trying to figure out if this was really what I wanted to do with my life. And I would come home with all these stories uh, from my family. You know, my sister would sometimes be a little grossed out by some of these stories, but I absolutely loved it. And then when applying to colleges, um, or being a veterinarian was kind of at the forefront of my mind. And a lot of people told me, you know, you might want to not consider doing this because um, you work really hard. You know, you uh, the debt to income ratio is something to consider, and just going into kind of eyes wide open um, from a business perspective. They were they were saying, "Hey, this might not financially be a good decision for you." Correct. You could use your intellect and do do better for yourself. Yes. So I gave up that dream for about four years, and I actually went to business school and graduated from the University of Missouri with a business marketing degree. Um, and about two years into the program, I kind of realized like, no, 
no, like I really need to be a veterinarian. This is what I'm being called to do with my life. And so I met with my advisor of the business school who helps um, formulate a plan to graduate on time with my business marketing degree and also apply to veterinary school. Um, so that's what I did. Uh, I graduated with the marketing degree and, and applied to, biz, uh, to veterinary school, which was quite a uh, involved process. Yeah, uh, I, I know a lot of people <laughs> in vet school and it's uh, I, I get a chance to travel around to a lot of the um, land grant universities mm -hmm. and I've met a lot of students in land grants and they had to work insanely hard to get there as yeah. i'm thinking about this you switched two years in and then still made it in in time correct you probably gave up a lot of your like social life to be able to make that happen I mean, it was definitely a lot of work for sure. So um, the veterinary school likes to see lots of shadowing hours. So they like to see 400 hours of shadowing large animal, um, 400 of equine or horses, and then 400 hours of small animal um, or dogs and cats. So it was... So what do, you, what do you think of that? I mean, like if you're going in there with, I want to be around puppies and kittens, and all of a sudden you have to be managing pregnant uh, like cows... That's a that's a totally different world. It was really, really fun for me and very helpful in helping me decide if this was really what I wanted to do because it's just absolutely fascinating. Um, animals, the difference of anatomy that, you know, a horse from a cow to a dog, and you learn all of that in veterinary school. Um, so I, I was really thankful for that shadowing time. And I kind of just went for it guns blazing. Um, the application was probably 20 pages long with three or four essays, and there's an interview process. And it was definitely... Um, you know, kind of reckless abandon going after that passion to, to do what I'm doing now. And the people that had tried to dissuade you, were they shaking their head no the whole time? Like, uh oh. <laughs> I think once they realized how um, much I loved it and how driven and just passionate I was about doing this with my life. And I think that because it is so hard to get into veterinary school, a lot of people say that it's harder to get into veterinary school than medical school yeah, even. Heard, yeah. And so um, I think they just didn't want my heart to be broken. And then, you know, maybe once they realized that now it's everything that uh, those people said trying to dissuade me couldn't have been further from the truth just about you know working long hours and the income and all that I mean I truly when I go to work now I just absolutely love what I do I love being able to help people and I just really feel like I have a sense of purpose with my career path whereas I think if I would have not gone after that I, I would have always wondered what if you know I would have so, so describe for me when you're in college and you said you have this pull right? I never had that pull so I don't actually know the experience that you're talking about in that way what did it feel like what like I think it's kind of like um when you think that you're gonna like maybe marry somebody when you know you know and that's kind of what it was like for me it was always like I was in you know thinking of oh, this is what I want to do and then it just literally like I have a very vivid uh, recollection of like one night in particular I was praying and just it was like this is what you have to do with your life which is it's kind of surreal actually and was it something that you ended up like being okay with you wanted or you were you like oh no now I have I, I have two years in and now I'm gonna have to go <laughs> tell these people or like 
I mean, so excited that you just blazed right through it. Super excited was like the primary uh, feeling. Definitely a little scared, but mostly excited. And then, you know, you you had a chance to shadow people. Mm -hmm. So you had an idea of what it would be like to be a veterinarian. But Mm -hmm. I would imagine that many people would either hide the eyes uh, of a kid in vet school about like, uh, it's got to take a toll on a person to be the one that another person is coming in and handing their pet to and there's no hope for it. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely um, difficult days and, you know, hard aspects of the job. But I didn't really feel like with shadowing that people were trying to hide that from me. I really Really? did feel like um, I got a lot of really, really great hands-on experience. And um, I am such a hands-on learner. So it was just awesome to kind of be a part of that. Um, But I did shadow some other jobs, too. So I feel like anybody in, um, you know, thinking of a career change or that is maybe in high school, not really sure what they want to do with their life. I feel like shadowing is really great for anyone thinking about anything. Yeah, because I actually spent some time with a physical therapist one day and that wasn't for me, you know, spent time with um, a meteorologist one day and just trying to figure out like in high school what I wanted to do with my life. The veterinary thing was always there from like probably the age of like four or five. Um, but I mean, going through that journey, trying to figure it out, it's really not easy. And you were thinking about something though, that I think we're probably about the same age. You might be a little younger than me, but the I think we're at the time when I wasn't thinking about how much college would cost or how much money I would make out of there. That wasn't really what I was thinking about, but you were motivated by that, or at least it seems like you were aware of it. Aware of it in the sense that, um, unfortunately for veterinarians and in my profession, um, there is, um, a pretty high debt to income ratio, um, so there, I think we have like the number one or number two suicide rate in, in any profession. That was one of the questions which somebody asked me. Is to ask you really, about. Um, I mean, it's absolutely heartbreaking. And I, there's so much that goes into um, kind of the work life balance and just having that sense of purpose, but also. Um, having like a, a well-balanced life <laughs> um, and not taking everything so personally when something like a case doesn't go the way that you expect it to go or, you know, th- there's a lot of pressure for sure with well, just going into work every day. <laughs> the, I mean, the thing that you're describing is kind of surfing on the edge of chaos because in order for you to be able to really help an animal or a person coming in with a hurt animal, you have to have some care and compassion for it. Yeah. But if you go just a little too far, you fall in the water and get swept away. Absolutely. Compassion fatigue is a really uh, big thing in the profession. And um, I, I mean, s- there's no simple answer for it at all. What is, what, what is something you do when you become aware that your compassion is being altered? I guess I just try to... maybe it's a bad thing, but I I feel like I've gotten pretty good at like compartmentalizing. So leaving work at work, while that's really, really difficult to do, um, if there is a sad case, I mean, or just a rough day, you know, letting myself feel those emotions and have um, how I try to make it a brief, like, little cry. I mean, if I have a really sad euthanasia that gets me choked up, like I do cry and um, letting that sink in, but also trying to 
focus on, okay, the next room is a, a puppy that I am, you know, and just um, really, I don't know, living the moment, but also having a life outside of work. Um, I really enjoy spending time with family and friends. And um, Your Instagram is killer. <laughs> you look like you are a world traveler. Thank I mean, you. When, I, when I pulled that up, I was like, whoa, she's going to all kinds <laughs> of cool places. And not just like uh, driving your car up there. You're like hiking up mountains and staring over vistas. It's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So my Instagram, Dr. Brittany Kennedy, I try to share lots of uh, pet tips for owners and and just my day-to-day life um, outside of work too. But there's, I, I think there's a lot of um, misinformation for pet owners, um, especially with like grain-free diets. And um, there, oh, there's so much let's with talk marketing about this. Yeah. Oh, you- <laughs> that these companies, you know, really want to sell something to people. And so having a voice coming from a, an expert, a veterinarian, like I, that is really why I made the Instagram account. Oh, th- you have no idea. So I <laughs> I have traveled all over the U.S., even into Canada, and talking with a lot of uh, animal producers, cattle producers, um, and we've been talking about the makeup of pet food because not only is grain, uh, that's like companies like Purina are one of the largest grain purchasers in the world, Mm -hmm. but they also buy meat products, but there's been a movement inside of the pet industry to start having like vegan dog food. Right. And the cowboys are really upset about this, but I've had no way to ask somebody, all right, let's talk about dog nutrition. Should they be eating vegan diets and what's going on with the amount of grain in pet food? So it's very interesting because the marketing of pet food definitely got way ahead of the science and the research behind it. So the FDA recently came out with a study um, about grain-free and um, basically what we call boutique diets, that they are causing something called dilated cardiomyopathy, which is a heart condition in dogs that are eating these grain-free diets. So it's very controversial. A lot of people that feed their pets, these grain-free diets, they are tried and true. They're very, you know, they're um, convinced that this is healthy for their pet. And what is a grain-free diet? It's not an all-meat diet then, is it? What is it? It's a it's grain-free. So they put um, different food products in, like there's some kangaroo diets and all these different... Oh, I uh, didn't know about that. <laughs> yeah. So... Um, it kind of got ahead of the research. So really, my recommendation when it comes to dog food is the tried and true companies that have been around forever, um, Purina, Royal Canin, and Hills, they have tons of research and studies that back up what their food is and the products that are in their food. So that is really, you know, I, I feed my dog Purina one sport and I have a golden and a husky. And you I know. feel so vindicated right now. You have no <laughs> idea how vindicated I feel because... My wife is very sensitive to whether our dog likes or doesn't like the food. Mm -hmm. And we are now, we moved from Purina, of which like I believe great dog food, lots of research, like I visited their offices, Mm -hmm. all the way out to these boutique things because if it makes my wife a little bit happier to like try and seek out the dog food, but I, then I'm not going to fight her on it. Yeah. But it does seem crazy. Well, it's interesting because as a veterinarian, having that conversation with clients because it is controversial is very, you know, you kind of get mad at you. 
you kind of have to pick your battles, I feel like, with people. So I don't, if they don't seem receptive to my recommendation, all I can do as a veterinarian and as a professional professional is to offer my best advice. So if people, you know, don't want to accept that, it kind of is what it is. I don't take personal <laughs> yeah. responsibility. You're not stopping for, by their house and no. drop a dog. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so um, that's kind of... How I feel about the whole food front. And is the same vaccine fear that goes on with human beings, does that go on with dogs as yes, well? Yes, it really? does. That's another kind of controversial topic is over-vaccination of pets. So um, the things that we vaccinate for are uh, the most uh, lethal diseases that we see in pets. They're common and they are um, heartbreaking when when these things happen. So vaccinating, you know, I'm a big proponent of um, doing vaccines, you know, and it, it is very similar to the controversy in vaccinating children. But then what you are people find worried these... about what do they what do they think is going to happen if they vaccinate their dog? Honestly, I do not know. <laughs> I think that they. I don't know what their fears are with it because there really isn't research out there to support kind of these notions. I, I guess it's a, a lot of um, personifying the animal and um, treating that pet like a human. And so because there are uh, concerns about overvaccination of children and people, maybe that's why they're concerned. It's just... I don't know. <laughs> so this is a bit of an aside, but in that vein, I, I when the coronavirus started coming out of China, uh -huh. I started watching YouTubers that are Americans living in China or Americans that used to live in China, just to give a sense for like, what do you think is going on behind the headlines? Mm -hmm. And there was a guy that got on and he said, if you're really worried about coronavirus, you know, that's killed a few people in China. And it's, you know, there's a few people in the US that are infected with it. That's not actually the problem. The flu, the influenza virus has already killed 8,000 people here this year. Mm -hmm. And because people haven't been vaccinating their kids against measles, that actually is on the rise here. So if mm -hmm. you want to do something about like global public health, go get your measles booster. Absolutely. I, I'm and all I went for and did it. it. <laughs> I, I, I got up. I was like, you know what? He's right. I, I, I don't, I've, I'd, I'm good for getting the booster. Let's go do it. Yes. But it would never have crossed my mind. Yes. Because like we sh this should be gone by now, but people are not vaccinating. Exactly, it's fascinating. It is what, fascinating. What do they teach you about in vet school about being able to handle these kinds of situations where you're like, I have the science on my side. You're saying something that you don't know is actually going to hurt your pet, but I've got to somehow pick my battles. But did the vet school give you psych classes? No, I took some psychology classes in undergraduate school, but you know, in veterinary school, we learn just basically the, the health. I mean, there's one business class, I think, and, but most of it is about the health of pets. But it's really interesting in learning about um, the health of pets is that there is a notion called one health, where basically it's a collaboration of veterinarians, human doctors, um, physicists, and all these scientists coming together and collaborating because there are so many disease processes and illnesses that overlap from animals to people. And so there's a lot of research that can be done, um, clinical trials and things like that, with 
pets um, and how that can help not only pets, but also people too with the advancement of medicine. I was down at the University of Florida. Their, their veterinarian school invited me in, which has both uh, like large animal and pets. And they were saying that they were getting protests around doing experimental surgeries. Mm -hmm. And they were like, people were saying, you shouldn't operate on these dogs. And these optometrists, they, they had figured out things that you could do with the dog's eye to be able to repair blindness. And they're like, if we don't experiment, then when your dog comes in and will be blind, we can't help it. Exactly. I mean, it really does help everyone. It's... Um it's the advancement of medicine, you know, um, having kind of this crossover and, you know, do you want your beloved dog when the, when your veterinarian graduates, do you want your beloved dog to be the first one to have, you know, the first spay that that doctor has performed? I don't know if right. that's it. Right. You don't, you, <laughs> and, and there's, uh, the veterinary school collaborates with shelters and so they will do, um, like their spays and neuters, that kind of thing for, the education of the student, but it's also good for the pet too to be able to be adopted out after having you know that procedure done. It's so important, and I think people overlook this to have our education systems be able to to um, test their skills in the real world. Like mm -hmm. we can't shelter uh, people, and we can't say there's no way to do experiments. I, like f one of the things that surgeons often do of human surgeons mm -hmm. is do operations on pigs mm -hmm. so that their first time that they're opening up a human that they're using a scalpel isn't on a, on a human being. It's on a pig. People lose their minds over that. Right. But, but the alternative is not good. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So some of this seems to me to be something you mentioned earlier, which is the anthropomorphization of pets and animals. Mm -hmm. Where do you think the line is drawn between humans and animals? Like what, what is your, how, how do you think about that? I think that the human animal bond is profound. I mean, there are things um, about the human animal bond that we don't even necessarily understand yet as human beings. Dogs can pick up things like the cancer. You know, I, my cousin was saying his dog could basically sense when his wife was pregnant. I mean, there's all these things that, you know, it's almost like dogs have this sixth sense about what's going on. And cats too. I'm also a huge cat person, but well, it's cats different. are different, yeah, right? Cats are like different. wild animals <laughs> that have just been kind of, you know, co-living dogs. Right. So one of the things that I say at a, at a talk that I give is that we've had agriculture farming mm -hmm. for 10,000 years. And mm -hmm. that's typically when they denote that that's when civilization began because once you have, uh, once I can grow enough food for me and you, now you can specialize and do something else and we can trade. Mm -hmm. So 10,000 years was agriculture. It was 15,000 that we've had dogs domesticated. Mm -hmm. So they're actually deeper embedded into us than farming and vegetables are. It's absolutely amazing. That's so mind blowing to think about. But I think, I mean, I think the it's fascinating and I actually kind of, it's, um, very encouraging part of like my profession that people are so intricately um, involved with their pets lives and care so much about them i think like the dog clothes and uh, you know just the the advancement of medicine and the care that people are getting now the way that 
dogs and cats are such a part of a family now, whereas 10 years ago, even, you know, they may, maybe weren't necessarily like that. They were getting the table scraps that um, the family wasn't eating, you know, that kind of thing. And so I what think it's think awesome. What do you think spurring on that, that change? Because it is rapid. I have a friend named um, Brian that does uh, a small animal uh, pharmacy. Mm-hmm. And he said, we've had to really think about what our flea and tick medications are because now people are sleeping with the dog in the bed. So it's right. one thing to have like, you know, Rufus sleeping out by the barn, what kind of flea and tick medication, but now it maybe get rubbed all over your face. So right. it's going to change the way you medicate this dog. Why, why is this change going on? Like what's I, happened? I think it has a lot to do with like millennials and how people nowadays are having children later in life. You know, maybe their profession um, is taking off and they're settling down later. That's exactly us. And That's my so, yeah. yeah. And so they really like their pets are their children. They are their fur children. And, um, you know, that's a term that really frightens a lot of people living out on farms that raise cattle and pigs because they fear that people having that anthropomorphization of their pets means that they start turning the lens and saying, we should treat livestock that way too, and we shouldn't then eat them. Hmm. Is this something you encounter? Do you meet a lot of people that think in this way? No. <laughs> I mean, for PETA people, maybe, uh, you know, um, but whenever like you're going through the interview process of becoming a veterinarian and things, I mean, they're, they really do try to weed out people like that because it really kind of, um, I don't know, shuns and, uh, just, it's just not, well, it's in, (laughs) it's intransigent, right? It won't, there's, it's inflexible and you're going to school because you're going to learn and there's going to be things about, Hey, this is how we think about taking care of a sick animal. This is the amount of pain that we can expose them to, to allow them to get better. Or this is the trade-off we can make. And if you have somebody in there that draws a line and says, none of that stuff is acceptable, it's hard to work with them. Correct. And that's why I think practicing medicine, when you think about the term practicing medicine, that really what is what it is. It's a practice. There's not a whole lot of black and white in life, but also in medicine. And so, you know, if there is something... I always tell people, you know your pet better than anyone. And so if somebody's coming to me, for instance, for a second opinion, I think that that is wonderful that they're being such advocates for this family member that they care so much about to really seek out, you know, what what could be a different thought process or, you know, a different step maybe. You know, that's very egoless, right? Like that's that's like saying my feelings won't be harmed if you go look into somebody else's way of doing it. Like, let's just get the pet better. Absolutely. That's, that's uh, have you always been that way? Are you, are you the type of person that can let things roll off you? Um, I guess, I don't know. <laughs> um, I, I just guess I kind of approach medicine more as like an art form versus like a science. I mean, it's definitely both, but also just kind of thinking outside the box because really there's not, there's not always a right answer. I don't know. And so tell me about those. What are those situations that you get into that you're like, uh, you know, there isn't a clear path here, but we need to take some path. So this is the way we're going. Um, Well, especially with like dogs with um, more elderly or um, debilitating diseases or really diseases without like a whole lot of hope, um, cancers and things like that, things like clinical trials or like if you had an older dog who was 
really painful with arthritis, that kind of thing, and just really kind of affecting its quality of life. Um, you know, maybe we have that dog on three different medications and it's still not, um, it's still acting really painful. Um, you know, trying some more alternative type options, um, things like animal chiropractic, animal acupuncture, um, underwater treadmill, physical therapy, things like that, that are maybe not super conventional, but just kind of coming up with all the options. Um, there's things like laser therapy. There's uh, a cold laser that basically you can, um, put over a source of pain and it decreases the inflammation, pain and swelling in that area. So just really pre presenting the client and the owner with all the options that they have so that it's their choice. Is So this is really interesting to me because you have talked about, you know, I want to know what the studies say on food. Mm -hmm. And then you're talking about when we get closer to the end of the dog, now we're willing to try more experimental things. Are these things backed up with research or are you saying... Hey, we you've got to try a path or the path is the dog is is gone. Kind of the latter more so. I mean, as far as research and stuff, there's not a ton of research out there for these kind of uh, alternative uh, approaches, but it is an option for people and I guess I my big thing is just letting the owner make that decision and having kind of all the going into it eyes wide open, having all the options presented to them um, versus saying, okay, this is exactly what we need to do. Um, this is the only option because that's really hardly ever the case. You know, if I had been standing outside of this conversation without actually having to think about your perspective, I would have been like, well, that's like selling snake oil, right? You're 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 taking advantage of people that are really sad. But then I think about you actually are having to take care of people that are really sad and are trying to figure out is it in the best interest of the dog to do an experiment that may not be true? Mm -hmm. I'd never actually thought of it it's, that way before. Yeah, I mean, we definitely as veterinarians, I feel like we are treating both the pet and also the owner, because there is so much emotion that goes into it naturally, you know, taking care of a, a family member. Um, and so if the option is, okay, we can try this, um, maybe not, you know, kind of alternative medicine, or we can euthanize the pet. I mean, I think, and that it has to be the choice of the owner. This is a tremendous weight of, uh, uh, I mean, this, I, I understand where you're coming from because otherwise, if you don't present those options, you're, you're dropping something on them. Correct. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> um, we had a greyhound. I married into it, right? My wife had a greyhound when I met her and then I, I married into it. And the dog ended up having a series of problems that pre-meeting my wife, I would have been like, I'd never let a dog go through that. And then all of a sudden you're like, no, there's this human bond that's going on there G going to a vet clinic and seeing the same vet is way more valuable to me than if i have a cold and i just want to know do i need to get some strep stuff because this person we have to communicate about my dog and if they're just a random person it doesn't feel the same for whatever reason exactly yeah i mean there's a level of trust that's definitely built there um over time and being a veterinarian i mean at the very first 
uh, encounter, usually within like the first five seconds, I mean, this the client has an impression of you and you want it to be a good impression, but also having those continued relationships. One of my favorite things about being a veterinarian is being able to follow the animal from puppyhood a lot of times to seniorhood. I mean, imagine if we were going to our doctor and we were seeing our pediatrician from the day we were born to, you know, <laughs> old age. Like that just doesn't happen in, in human medicine. Um, but it having that relationship with the owner and the pet and just I feel like I have like over 100 dogs and cats at this point because I really do see these pets like my family members too and I love being able to help them and help people my wife the only like she had a really interesting question that I wouldn't have thought of she said okay what is up with the vets that sit down on the ground when your dog comes in and they let your dog lick you in the face? She's like, I don't even let my own dog lick me in the face. Why would a, why would a dog, you know, let a strange dog do it? Do they know something about dog licking that I don't know? And I was like, I don't know. That's I'll ask. hilarious. <laughs> uh, so I do that. I, I mean, on the ground for sure. Maybe not necessarily licking the face, but um, I think that there's veterinarians as a whole just love animals and there's something so intimate about a pet licking uh whether it be the owner or vet or anybody in the face i mean that's like it just it's a moment you know they're giving you you a big old kiss big old slobbery kiss so and and what other i mean there's very few other circumstances where you a human being with a wild thing just has it just licking you in the face because it's just saying, I want to be your friend. I want to be your friend. Exactly. Yeah. So um, I think that a lot of times owners like that too. I mean, there's in the, there's a whole science around the exam room. It's interesting that um, having like a table in between the owner and the, and the veterinarian, it kind of sets up that barrier of communication. And so really trying to be like on the same level as the person you're speaking to or, you know, being um, making that eye contact and, and removing um, the, the barrier. So getting on the ground, if the owner's on the ground too, or, you know, the dog, like just... Um, really approaching and being approachable, I guess. I mean, it sounds like you have a psychology PhD. I mean, like this is, so do you, do you find that this is just a part of becoming a veterinarian is that you have to spend so much time with people that everybody gets better? I think so. Yeah. You kind of learn as you go and you try to pick up on body language and, um, you try to figure out what people like. So for me, a question in the exam room has been, should I wear scrubs in a lab coat? Should I wear um, professional clothes in a lab coat or no lab coat? It's kind of interesting hearing different people's perspective. And I don't know if there is a right answer to that. Uh, But in the veterinary profession right now, there's a, a movement called fear free. So basically having it be a super, super positive experience for the pet and not having that intimidation intimidating approach to where if the the pet is, you know, crouching down or trying to hide, we're really trying to get away from that as a profession. So using things like tons and tons of treats, um, because if the pet is getting, you know, cheese at home, we want them to have a high dollar reward so that they really feel like they belong. And and I don't want to be the place where Pets just come to get their shots all the time. Yeah, you, know? you want them to be wagging their tails when they come in. Make exactly, sure they're happy. Right? Exactly. That's a good point. So um, the lab coat is um, kind of interesting because some 
fear free. It's uh, they prefer like a blue lab coat, and so now they're tr- because it's supposedly emotionally better for the pet to have a blue lab coat. So I try to get away from the white lab coat thing, but again, it's it's just kind of interesting how that's going to evolve through the years too. Well, it, I guarantee you, right now there are cattle ranchers either riding in their truck or doing something in their barn that their eyes are rolling into the back of their <laughs> their head, right? Because they're saying like, "What? Well, they're animals," and we get in there and we get I, like I, Jared McDaniel is a good buddy of mine, cattle rancher out in Oklahoma. He's got to take care of 500 cattle. Like he's grinding. Right. No time for, should I wear the blue lab coat (laughs) or the white lab coat? Exactly. I mean, I think there's definitely a place for it. And overall, I think it's a really great advancement for the profession. And people like it too uh, most of the time. But yeah, there's definitely a time and place for it. I mean, I like thinking about the fact that if you go to a vet, that they're thinking about that, that's a good sign, right? It's a better mm-hmm. sign than they're just doing what they've always done. Mm-hmm. What do you What do you see as far as the type of illnesses that we now treat in animals that maybe weren't treated before? Um, compared to when? Maybe, I don't know, since you began. And how long have you been a vet? Uh, I've been practicing four years now. Oh, wow. So. <laughs> Your experience sounds to be so much bigger. That's uh, that's amazing. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, you sound like you know what you're talking about. I mean, thank you. at least your ability to interact with uh, the people. So maybe I guess... Where, like the the thing I'm asking about is, do you keep people dogs alive with cancer, and mm-hmm. and like what level is that getting to, and how much how much is going on there? There is a lot going on there. So um, at least in St. Louis, so there's an oncologist out in Wentzville. Um, it's a satellite clinic of Mizzou um, called Mizzou Cancer Center, and they have board certified oncologists. So in the veterinary profession, there's people that are general practitioners that we learn everything in veterinary school from cattle, horses, small animals. Um, and then general practitioners are like me who go into the workforce. But then there's also every specialty that there is in human medicine. There's also for animals, um, oncologists, radiologists, internal medicine specialists, um, orthopedic surgeons. And so uh, with r- regards to like cancer and things like that, if a client was wanting to pursue that option for chemotherapy, um, I would refer simply because I am not comfortable hand handling like the chemotherapy drugs. I can, but it becomes well, it makes like sense. a biohazard. Somebody that's doing it all the time is going to be way better. And if they're focused on it all the time, their specialization is a real thing. Right, exactly. So I would refer them either to Mizzou for an oncology consult or um, or the satellite clinic in Wentzville. But we do see that all the time. There was actually a, um, the Super Bowl is tomorrow and there was a uh, commercial that uh, an owner had paid for like six million dollars for their dog to be on this. I Super saw that. Bowl what was that? I didn't even see that. Yeah. So that's going to happen. That will have happened um, on Sunday. So Correct. this podcast will run after the Super Bowl. Yes. So what is going on with it? They, I guess, this dog had maybe a one percent chance of living, and the veterinarian referred it to one of the veterinary schools who treated for cancer, and the dog did great. The cancer shrunk, and now, I mean, it's on this Super Bowl commercial. That I think it's wonderful that this owner, you know, paid six million dollars for this commercial to air on the Super Bowl. Some people are saying, well, you know, he should have spent that money on like a shelter or just donated that money directly to. Uh, 
the veterinary school. But if you think about his reach with the Super Bowl by donating this money, and if other people see this commercial and are inspired to donate even one dollar, I mean, that is going to have a huge impact, a way bigger impact oh, on you. the veterinary now, we're school. We're talking about it right now, right? Mm-hmm. Like we're talking about it and there's going to be oncology school. Like, so University of Florida has an oncology program there mm-hmm. and they say the thing that holds us back is more money to try new equipment, right? Like that's yeah. what we need to be able to do it. And we can advance and keep your pets alive longer. Mm-hmm. So if somebody decides they want to spend their $6 million on that, then go to it. That's yeah. great. And it's just great for veterinarians to have some positive publicity sometimes too, because I think some people think that veterinarians are just in it for the money and they don't necessarily care about pets and and that's all, all that negativity kind of feeds into the um you think the suicide think that? I think some people do wow I mean it's rare that I come across that I feel like in my own personal life but I, mean, I people definitely would really think struggle that... to think that you think that yeah. <laughs> but I think that some people do yeah maybe some people had bad experience going to a vet and um if that's the case I mean I think some people think that they're stuck with whatever vet they've been going to because that veterinary clinic has their records whereas they can literally go anywhere they want so if you don't like the veterinary you're going to Go somewhere else. I think I've been out of the world. I remember when our Greyhound got sick and then you're there and there's all of this experience. But now that we have a healthy dog, you know, we, my wife does the regular checkups and then we're out of there. But whatever my vet wants me to pay to make sure it's got heartworm and Mm -hmm. doesn't get like ticks, I'm good. You know, tell me, tell me how much it costs. Yeah. Every client should be like you. (laughs) I mean, like, so what do you think of the costs of of getting vet work? Like how are people get upset about it? They think it's too expensive. Some people do. Yeah. I mean, it's got to be an interesting thing on how does a vet set their prices, right? Because you, you are in a free market. There is a cost to services. And in order to keep a dog alive, there's a cost to it, right? Yeah. I mean, I just think about the cost of like human medicine and how expensive everything is. Um, you know, you go to the emergency clinic for one thing and you're looking at hundreds, hundreds or thousands. Or th- yeah, th- yeah it's, it's a lot. So, um, I mean, I think that the, the cost kind of is what it is. And um, I don't know. Is there insurance for, for pets? There is insurance. It's becoming more commonplace now than it used to be. Um, there's some different insurance options for pets. So I always tell people to kind of read between the lines when they're looking at insurance companies because based on the breed, sometimes the insurance company will exclude the most common things that that pet is likely to get. Oh, no. And so it definitely becomes um, a little bit of a, a game, but I'm all for pet insurance. Absolutely. True Panion is usually a good one, too, if people are looking for pet insurance. I think that uh, Bear, which just recently mm-hmm. bought Monsanto, I believe that they have some kind of pet insurance that you can buy as a function through your work. I think a lot of companies are offering that now. I've heard that quite a bit, that people are being offered pet insurance through their company, which is awesome. The thing that more businesses should do is offer dog daycare. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I mean, like that For is real. like giving everybody twenty-five or thirty-dollar raise right there. Exactly. Right? So, so the rise of dog daycares uh-huh. does this bring up the rise of doggy influenza and other kinds of problems, or it's just the way? It, I think a lot of the boarding facilities do take 
um, appropriate measures to ensure that the pets that are coming there are healthy. So overall, I don't think so. Um, but dogs do travel quite a bit more now than they used to, especially like on planes and things like that. Oh, so I didn't even think about yeah, that. <laughs> yeah. So there is more of opportunity for disease spread and things. But um, for the most part, I mean, by vaccinating, you're helping prevent those kind of issues. And now with more people getting veterinary care even than they used to, all that kind of comes into play. Wow. We've talked a lot about dogs, but one thing that I don't understand is why do people keep cats? It's, it's, it <laughs> seems like I don't, I don't have anything against them. I just don't. I have no connection with a cat. I would never want one in my house. I have two cats. I love, love, love cats. They are totally different from dogs, and you kind of have to take them for what they are. So cats are not dogs. Dogs are not cats. Um, my cats are super affectionate. Every night they snuggle. They purr. Um, they are just, like, they kind of act in a weird way like dogs when they're, like, begging for food sometimes. <laughs> um, but, no, I... Cats are a great family pet to have because they're not, they don't have the upkeep necessarily that dogs have, especially for people that travel a lot or super busy lifestyle. Um, I mean, cats are wonderful, wonderful companions. Yeah, you don't have to take them to cat daycare. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. They're super easy to care for overall. I mean, they they kind of take care of themselves, whereas dogs are quite a bit more needy, I would say, as a whole. I never thought about that. Um, did you have pets growing up? Cats are so... I did. Yeah, I had every kind of pet growing up. I had chameleons and birds and rabbits and dogs and cats and turtles and uh, potbelly pig. And, oh, yeah, I had all you kinds of... You a certain of <laughs> kind of parent that would allow all of this craziness in your, in your house. Did you live out in the country? No. No? <laughs> no. I lived in just a normal standard suburb neighborhood and I guess my parents they were just super encouraging for whatever it was that uh we wanted to do with our lives so they were just always kind of they didn't mind wow I know it took quite a bit of convincing one of the cats I remember my grandma would take us for a birthday outing to get whatever gift we wanted and so one of these outings you know my grandma what do you want for your birthday this year and I must have been 12 at the time and so we ended up going to the pet store and getting a cat because that was what I wanted oh my god were your parents <laughs> so upset when you came home with a cat they weren't upset with me they might not of have course, been as you're happy 11. <laughs> <laughs> you're 11. they might not have been happy with my grandma because but. how are you ever gonna you just the grant your grandma made like a what like a 12 year commitment right <laughs> <laughs> it was amazing. Best grandma ever. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> and then other things, you were the one going and begging for a potbelly pig? Like, yeah. So the potbelly pig, when I was doing the shadowing at um, in college, one of the receptionists had this potbelly pig that she couldn't keep. And so I was like, well, I'll take a potbelly pig. And so at the time, I was driving a two-seater stick shift Miata and drove from Columbia back to St. Louis with the potbelly pig in the passenger seat with the top down. And I think the uh, truck drivers are kind of looking at me like, wow, that girl is crazy. Um, but it was my brother's birthday. I was going back to St. Louis for a concert. And I was like, here, Jimmy, like, here's the potbelly pig. Like it was just, we had so much fun with that pot belly pig and it just kind of became, you know, part of the family to it. Went outside with the dog and, <laughs> wow, I, you know, pigs are really smart. 
Yeah, really I mean, I, I actually uh, helped take care of a potbelly pig when I was, I don't know, maybe 13 or 14 years old. And uh, they are really smart. Like, <laughs> they, they, if, and like, that's the funny thing about smart pets. Because you think like, oh, I want a really smart pet. But a really smart pet means they can get out of the things that you try and put them in. They can figure out how to open stuff. Like they can get into way more mischief. Oh, yeah. Like my parents have a golden now who opens the door and lets himself outside and inside and gets into a lot of mischief because (laughs) of it. (laughs) So changing the subject, but we mentioned before your Instagram, Mm -hmm. you seem to go on some really interesting and exciting like adventures and trips. When I look at somebody that's doing that kind of travel, I always wonder, like, how do you get it in your head that that's the place that you want to go? And then you just line up a trip and go there. I guess inspiration, talking to other people, um, looking at pictures online and just trying to figure out where you want to go. But, yeah, I definitely love to travel and camp and hike and do, like, outdoorsy type stuff, snowboarding and water skiing. So, yeah. And uh, where was the last cool place you went? Uh, I was in Sedona last week. My brother was getting married in Phoenix. And so my husband, who's also a veterinarian, uh, we drove up to Sedona and hiked around for the day. And um, when we graduated veterinary school, we also did a trip to like the Grand Canyon and we hiked to the bottom of the Grand Canyon and back up in one day, which most people don't do that. I wouldn't recommend it's it. It's kind of dangerous, it yeah. It ended up being like 19 or 20 miles in the one day, but it was amazing. We had so much fun. And you got to be in pretty good shape for that. You, you're you like running and no. walking all the time? No. <laughs> no. I think with work, though, I walk a lot. I probably walk two miles a day just with work going all over the place. Yeah, you're definitely not sitting at a desk all day. Right. Wow. So your husband's a veterinarian. Did mm-hmm. you guys meet in vet school? We did, yeah. Okay. It, what is uh, something that's unusual about being married to another veterinarian that people wouldn't think of? I think people probably think that we talk about work all the time, and we really don't. Um, we mostly talk about just normal stuff and if there is like an interesting case or something odd that happened we'll talk about it but most of the time we don't really talk about like veterinary stuff so doctors often or at least like i had a cardiologist on here and he has to read medical journals you know regularly to try and keep up with what the science is Mm -hmm. is the same thing going on with veterinarians yes so we do continuing education um there's a requirement to kind of keep your license. I think it's 10 hours. Every state is different with that. Um, but I really enjoy going to conferences and things. And that's kind of another way that I and I get to travel a lot is because these conferences, I mean, they're in places like Hawaii or Florida or things like that. And so it really is kind of a work trip, but also just enjoying uh, learning new things and uh, listening to presentations and things like that. And what is the highest achievement that a veterinarian can get to? Is it that they they become speakers at these to to present their new research, or what? What's the that status is in- definitely uh, an honor for sure to be able to speak at that. I don't really know particularly like what I, I guess every person is different with what they're trying to do with their careers. Um, the dean of the veterinary school at Mizzou is a, a dear friend of mine and a mentor and. I've, and she's definitely somebody that I look up to in the profession. Um, but there, the interesting thing about the veter- about veterinary industry is there are so many different avenues you can take. You can do public speaking. You can do research. You can own a clinic. You can work for corporate. You can um, 
you know, travel. There's all different kinds of things that maybe people don't think about. And even like food animal industry, there's veterinarians that inspect all the um, produce that we're consuming. I mean, it, there's a whole lot of stuff. So I think that that's a very rewarding thing about the profession is if you want to switch it up, you can. And th- I mean, I guess that would be the case for why it's good that vet school has you go from being able to treat um, cows and, and horses and cats and dogs and mice. Do you also see like the challenge? Do you think people maybe should specialize or do you like having it be that so encompassing? You know, instead of saying, hey, you're going to do small animal vet, so I'm going to just study that, but get really good in that area? That's a really tough question because I think there's definitely pros and cons to both. Um, You know, part of me does think that if I have always wanted to do small animals, dogs and cats, that I would just kind of track that way um, in veterinary school to do what I'm doing now. But also on the flip side, I definitely feel like I am more well-rounded knowing about cattle, knowing about horses. Um, I'm not, I wouldn't be comfortable enough to like treat a horse or a cow if now, if I wanted to, because there is so much uh, of routine, you kind of right being four years the in small you know animal. Yeah. Yeah, you're doing uh, I feel like I'd have to relearn everything, but I think it is, it's definitely both. I'm glad I got the education that I did. I feel like I am very, uh, I was very prepared to start my career. So I asked you this when you walked in, but um, you you have not used one of these? No. So uh, I don't know for sure that it'll change veterinarian world, but I think that it likely will. Okay. Because it it would take too long for this thing to boot up. But when you put this thing on, right, have you ever used anything with VR at all? Mm-mm. Like, have you ever used the Google Cardboard and you could put your phone in a little thing and you can look around? Do you, do you have any sense for what this is like? I don't think so. <laughs> so the crazy thing about this is you will go to, we can do this afterwards. You put this thing on your head and once uh-huh. it's booted up, in every direction you look, it is the, it's the simulation of what's going on in here. So mm. it is the equivalent of having your mind transported somewhere else. Wow. And it is so completely encompassing that... Like I flew through a Salvador Dali painting, right? Where they have a statue and they're just, I'm just in a video or you can go to Tahiti and get in uh, on a surfboard and be inside of a wave. But you could also use this for having somebody put their pet in front of a camera and have it walk around and you could see its gait. You could see how it would move because it is like you are right there. That's awesome. Yeah, I think going back to your question about how medicine will change over the next 10 or 20 years, I think telemedicine is going to be a very um, interesting aspect to watch because there are things like this, different tools. And I know even with my own insurance, being able to call a doctor and just have them call in my prescription, it's awesome. It's amazing, right? Mm -hmm. And it it does cut out those stuff that you don't need to be in person for. Mm-hmm. I think that even outside of just medicine, and I, I think this is going to have a bigger impact on the world than email or even Google did. Wow. It, it's going to be so profound because you could be sitting in a tiny apartment in Shanghai and suddenly be transported to the mountains of Sedona mm-hmm. and be able to look all around and then pop it off and then it's gone. And I think it's going to change... Um, what it means to know something, right? Like 
Think about how when you went to Sedona and you climb up on those rocks, there's a chance you'll fall down or get lost or you won't get back in time. In order to have that experience, you had to have some risk. Mm-hmm. People will be able to have experiences minus the risk. Wow. Which like, I think that's going to change the way people think about things. Mm. What do you think? I think it's fascinating. I think I would have to try it to see exactly how it works because I am such a visual and hands-on learner, but it sounds amazing. My wife doesn't like it because it makes her seasick, but it doesn't make me seasick. It might make me seasick. (laughs) We'll try it. I'll I'll see what you think because I think like, so I took this over to my in-laws last week. And it, I felt like it was that experience, you know, the first time somebody walked in and showed you a computer. Did you ever know life with before a computer? Uh, no. You only had computers in your house, like, since you were growing up. As far as I can remember. Wow. So that's a difference. So I was, I'm just a little bit older than you. And I can remember we got, my dad brought home an Apple 2GS. And I remember the first time it booting up, we had to learn how to use a mouse because you didn't, you didn't know how it would work. And like, so they had you play this game and then by the time you were done, you were like, oh, okay, that's how the cursor works. So I love showing this to people because it will be something you will remember for the rest of your life. You'll be like, I remember the first time I saw that. And that's awesome. And children will not have any idea what it was like to watch television on a, on a flat screen on the wall. It will be <laughs> like, why did you do that? That seems silly. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. I'm excited to try it. So you caught me at a very, like, I'm very excited about this because I just I got like it about that. a week ago. That's awesome. I do feel like with uh, diagnosing and treating animals, because our animals can't talk and tell us what's wrong, as veterinarians, we rely so heavily on the physical exam. Touching it? Yes. So, I mean, nose to tail, eyes, ears, mouth. I mean, we look at absolutely everything with a physical exam. And so to not be able to ascult and listen to the heart rate and see what the lungs sound like and know, you know, you can tell owners to check the temperature on their dog, no problem. But can you teach an owner to listen to their dog's heartbeat and know if there's a murmur or arrhythmia? I don't think so. That's a really good point. But this definitely could be helpful for like what you were describing with monitoring gait or especially if there already is a diagnosis, trying to assess how it's advancing or progressing for things like that. I think it's absolutely going to be helpful. So um, do you have a system like a checklist of things that you go through? Like how do you make sure you do a thorough exam of a dog when every dog's different, every problem is different. How are you doing that? It's a it's a nose to tail process. You know, you start with the eyes, you check with the palpebral um, where you touch the eyes and a menace to see if they can see. So you basically move your hand kind of towards their eye and see if they're blinking. And if they are, then they can see. If not, then, you know, you could be dealing with a blind pet. And then I go very systematically from the literally the nose to the tail, checking the teeth, seeing if there's dental disease, checking the ears, if there's any sort of an ear infection, looking at all the coat and fur, feeling if there's any kind of lumps or bumps anywhere, um, seeing if there's any, you know, fleas or things like that. And all this is coming into the process, um, feeling all the legs, joints, seeing if there's any areas of pain along the back, seeing if there's any neurologic defects, um, listening to the heart and lungs. Um, all of that really comes into the physical exam process, which it's kind of funny because when I go to the human doctor, I'm like, 
why aren't you looking at me? I mean, they, they don't. They don't really look at you. But the difference is in human medicine, we can tell them where it hurts, what's wrong. And they can really focus and hone in on that one particular thing that we came in for. Whereas with pets, they, we, they can't tell us that where it hurts. And so we have to be advocates for that animal. We have to identify things that maybe the people don't even realize are, are going on. Wow. I mean, that would force you into a sort of holistic care it is that uh, you, that that a, that a doctor that doesn't look at you doesn't have to do. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I think prevention is the best medicine, especially like heartworm disease. It's amazing how many people come into the office and don't know about heartworm disease, which is it's lethal. So dogs get heartworm disease from one mosquito. If one mosquito bites your dog, it can get heartworm disease. And they are what it sounds like. It's worms. They get about a foot and a half long. They live in the heart valve and it causes congestive heart failure. So once a dog comes up positive for heartworm disease, we can treat for it. But we're basically, it takes about six months. We're giving the dog a series of three injections. That's like a chemotherapy drug where we're trying to kill the worm without killing the dog. So it's a super, painful process for the dog and it's very expensive um a 40 50 pound dog it's you're looking at a thousand to fifteen hundred dollars to treat for it because it does take six months and because the injections are very expensive so you can prevent for seven years of the dog's life the cost of one heartworm treatment so with prevention i mean prevention is absolutely the way to go and there are Lots of, unfortunately, in St. Louis, I mean, heartworm is running rampant. I think last week we diagnosed seven dogs with heartworms. That's shocking. People have to, you know, either pay for treatment or the dog is going to die. Or some people will get rid of their dog if they can't afford it. But I mean, that's kind of the reality of, of the situation with heartworm. And so prevention. I'm all about prevention. And are there other things that people are not preventing? I mean, a heartworm, that's just something you feed your dog like Mm -hmm. a little chewy thing, right? Yeah. So there's um, oral prevention, topical, or there's actually a one-year injection, which is my personal favorite. It's called ProHeart 12. Um, And so there's four big things that we prevent for in dogs. Heartworm is the most important one, but we also prevent for fleas, ticks, and internal parasites. Those are kind of the four things, heartworm being the most important one. So even with the heartworm prevention, and you give the prevention every 30 days, but if we forget by you know, two days, three days, if our dog gets bit by a mosquito in that period of time, it could get heartworm. Oh, wow. It's that sensitive. Yeah. So that's why the ProHeart 12 is really great to make sure that we have that on board with the injection and we don't have to remember to give it every month. So you're a very upbeat person. You also appear to be somebody that is uh, industrious, able to get things done, right? Do you find it uh, frustrating when you have patients that didn't do preventative care? I, it's sad more than anything. Okay. Because of the reality of, you know, that kind of being a life or death thing for that pet. Um, but I don't really get frustrated kind of going back to, I can make my best recommendation, but I don't take things personally when somebody decides to not go with that recommendation. Because I feel like I've done all the best that I can to do my best and I'm able to sleep at night with that. Well, I think that's good. I mean, you've got to find a way to do that. And and it's in everyone's best interest if the veterinarians that they work with have a good way to balance their life. Mm-hmm. What do you think you've learned about um, the loss of a pet that, that would be important for other people to know? Um, I think it's about 
quality and not quantity when it comes to quality of life. Um, there's certain there's some checklists out there and things like that that can, people can go through. But I usually tell people, um, you know, are they having more good days than bad days? Um, try to think of two or three things that your pet enjoys doing. And once they can't or don't enjoy two out of the three things, then I start thinking maybe it's time. Um, That's really good. Yeah. So just enjoying the time that we have, but also whatever that person decides to do, it's really their choice. And do they look to you to say, what would you do? All the time. (laughs) How do you respond to that? It's really a hard question to answer because um, I had a golden retriever who was 13 years old and I knew he had cancer for about a year and a half. um, And just, it was lung cancer. It was not a good prognosis. And he passed on his own when I couldn't be there. And I think there is something so beautiful to be able to be present with the animal. Um, it's normal to feel the, all those emotions when you lose a pet. The grief process is very involved and profound, but also different for every person. Oh, I, uh, so I was in Toronto when our dog, the Greyhound lady died. And so my wife was on the phone with me and I was not prepared for like how much that was going to impact me. Cause like I had married into the dog, it wasn't. And so then I was sitting there being like, should we make the dog endure more pain just so I can get home? That doesn't seem right. And then you had to do it on the phone. Like it was just, I. I was unprepared. And if I had heard somebody else telling this story, I'd be like, just get over it. You know, but like your wife is there, your dog is there. It's so sad. It is. And I don't think that, I think that you're right. I think we've had 15,000 years of human dog interaction that makes that hard, right? Which is what makes you say, I want to go get another puppy again and mm-hmm. keep doing it over and over again. Mm-hmm. I think if I was passing from some incurable disease and if I was, you know, had no hope, um, how would I want to go? I would want to go with people petting me, giving me all the food that I want, telling me I'm beautiful. Like, I think that the euthanasia is a very peaceful process and um, it's it's very humane for the pet. That's a great way to think of it. Good for you. You have... Uh you have an extraordinary outlook on life. Like you're very sunny and you have this positive disposition, but you have a very low ego, at least in the way you're describing these things. What is the foundation that you gathered? You know, you said I prayed and then I got this answer. Like, where do you have this foundation for this egolessness and this kind of sunnier disposition? I don't know. I've always been like that. I don't know if it's personality or if it, if there is some, discipline maybe or if I've cultured this outlook in some way but I I do think having good mentors and people to support me and my dreams and aspirations I would say that's a huge part of who I am and as you think about books or thing like things you've seen on YouTube that you thought hey this is a good message. I think more people should either read this book or hear about this way of thinking about raising your pets. What, what would that be for you? Well, my Instagram, of course. Oh, yeah. Well, that's a good point. Fair, fair enough. Yeah, yeah. 
No. Um, well, I read a book by Temple Grandin. Well, I've read most of it. Um, the Dogs Make Us Human. I Temple Grandin is my hero. Really? I really like Temple Grandin. Yeah, she's amazing. She really revolutionized veterinary medicine in a lot of ways, especially with regards to cattle. So yeah, I know her pretty well. We we like we we see each other at conferences. She's going to come on the podcast. I want to meet her. Oh yeah, she, she said when she comes through St. Louis, she'll be on here. She was on Jared McDaniel's podcast. Yeah. Okay, I definitely want to meet her. That's like on my bucket list of things to do is to meet Temple Grandin. Well, it's it's easy enough to find her because she be shows up. So I've been invited to the North American Meat Institute, which is where you have the cattle um, where they go to the slaughterhouses. And um, these are people that get together at a conference to try and figure out what is the next most humane thing that we can do. And we have mm-hmm. limits on how much we can do because we have to pay for new grates or new lighting systems or new whatever. And she is there sitting in the back and people are reading off new amendments and how they're going to build their plan. And if she doesn't like it, she marches right up to the microphone and says her thing. And then there are other people that have a deep expertise. It is fascinating to watch. So I don't know if you can come to a Meat Institute meeting, but if to. you can... You should. That would be awesome. I would love that. <laughs> well, I'll uh, I'll let them know because uh, it's something to see somebody that has her way of looking at the world. How did you find out about Temple Grandin? I think I watched a, her Netflix video, uh, just a story kind of about her life. The Claire Danes um, one? I think that was the one. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Yeah. But she she spoke at... AVMA, which is American Veterinary uh, Conference in Florida this past year about animals, the humane, um, you know, how to take care of and all that humane. So she is amazing. She's really been revolutionary for veterinary medicine. That book, Pets Make Us Human, was like shocking to me because it wasn't just like, this is how you should pet your dog. And this is, it is, it's helping you understand when your dog takes these actions, this is what it's trying to communicate to you. And I'm not very good at it, but I definitely took a lot more time to try and observe what my dog was doing and how it was expressing an idea. And it was really, really neat. I mean, I I think that's probably a skill you have. I think maybe not being so aware of it, but yeah, you kind of pick up that kind of stuff in day-to-day life. Um, When we see some dogs that come in to the exam room that are more aggressive, and so trying to keep that a fear-free process for them, whether we need full-on sedation, and a lot of owners with aggressive pets, they know that, you know, this is what we're going to have to do so that it's safe for the owner, the veterinarian, the animal. And we try to do everything in one full swoop so that we don't have to revisit the matter. Uh, but yeah, being being bit by a dog is probably one big fear that I have. Have you been bit by a dog? Mild little nicks, but not anything severe, knock on wood. That's pretty good. I like my face. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. Is it common for vets to get bit? It. Not if they're being safe and reading the body language and using sedation and doing fear-free stuff. It's not um, – I, I think that taking those precautions and being more um, on the preventative side and just reading the situation before it elevates. What What do you know about pet body language that other people maybe wouldn't know because they don't see as many dogs as you do? There – 
uh, dogs being aggressive out of fear is something that I think people don't quite understand. Um, they will have their ears more back, kind of hunched down in the corner. And if they're afraid, you know, that's kind of why the food and treats and positive reinforcement really comes into play. Um, I'm also a big proponent of veterinary visits just for treats you know just bringing your pet into the veterinary clinic to get treats and pets and love so that every time they go there they're not just getting a shot you know oh that's interesting Uh, do people do that oh yeah really oh yeah all the time because otherwise when they need their dog to be calm and patient they're they're freaked out yeah and it becomes a bit more pricey too if you have to do like the sedation and things there are certainly some pets that regardless of what you do they're going to need sedation um, or need a muzzle or things like that but most of the time we try to tease the pet into thinking that it is you know i'm just going to the place where i get all the treats all the time instead of having it be you know painful if they're only going to the vet when they're painful whether it be they've have a herniated disc in their back and they need pain meds, they're limping, they're getting a vaccine, you know, that kind of thing. We want it to be a positive experience for sure. So speaking of, you know, like those experiences that a pet could have that would be uh, not positive for them, things like declawing and uh, the different practices, do those still happen? Are those still going on? So St. Louis just outlawed declawing in the city. Um other countries have outlawed declawing. It does still happen. Um, things like declawing, ear cropping, tail docking, those are all more cosmetic elective procedures that, you know, for, especially with declawing, if it is a matter of keeping the pet in the house or having that pet end up in the shelter, you know, declawing is definitely controversial, but it definitely does happen. Yeah, I mean, if I had a cat, if there was any chance that it would stay there, it would have to not tear up your furniture. Yeah. And, and if you have that, then yeah, you're right. The option if you can't declaw is getting yeah. rid of the cat. Mm-hmm. And so in the state of Missouri, though, in other parts you can declaw? Yes. Wow, interesting. I didn't realize there were... What drives a city to, to make a pronouncement like that? I don't know. I don't know what... Because it seems like it would drive up the very thing you don't want, which is more cats in your shelter. I think with it being in the city, those people that do want a declaw still will maybe just go to the county. So I don't really know. And also, I don't know if it's really enforceable. I haven't heard anything about how they're enforcing it. So I think it kind of is more a political move maybe than anything. Oh, that's interesting. (laughs) Wow. Well, I cannot thank you enough for coming by and talking all about pets. Um, This is really great. And your sister was 100% right that you would be fascinating. And I've never met anybody like you before. So this was great. And so thank you so much. And I'll look forward. We have a podcast party every once in a while from the people that are guests. And I'm sure there are a lot of people that would like to meet you. Awesome. But if people wanted to look you up, tell me the Instagram one more time. Um, Dr. Brittany Kennedy. Brittany Kennedy, B-R-I-T-T-A-N-Y. Kennedy, K-E-N-N-E-D-Y. Yep. All right. Well, thank you so much. <laughs> thank I appreciate you. it. Thank <laughs> you. So how do I, oh, I picked it up. How do I pick? I don't know. I've never used this game before. I was just, it was, I had set it up and then. That is so cool. What? I feel like I'm, Oh.
if I keep walking, what happens? I'm like, okay. Okay. So, um, we got off the, we got done (laughs) and, um, and we decided that you would try out the VR. Yep. And while you were doing that, I flipped open Twitter and it has gone absolutely crazy with questions. And so you were like, well, why don't we just hop back on and answer some more? So I'll definitely ask you some more questions. But first, what did you think of this? It was crazy. That is so cool. Basically, everywhere you look, it's 3D. There's objects you can pick up and interact with. And when you look up, there's things. I mean, it's just awesome. It's like a real... When I told you about it, how close was I to being correct? It's because I'm such a uh, visual learner. It was hard to fully understand exactly what it was until I experienced it. But it's amazing. That, that's <laughs> what I think. I think there's no way to be able to explain it with words. Right. What you're capable of doing there. And you did the mildest of things. Right. Like <laughs> yeah. you weren't flying through the air or going under the water. Like and, and what the crazy thing was, as soon as you put it on your head you could figure it out. You mm-hmm. weren't like ambling around being like, how do I do this? What was going on? What were you doing inside of your little dream? Here? I was picking up cans and like opening a printer. It was like a, kind of like a game room slash lab that I was in. And there were stars and robots and Isn't TVs. this like trying to describe a dream? Yeah. Like, like to another person where you're like, I don't know, there were elephants yeah. and then there was like a kangaroo that came by. Yeah, it was awesome. So would you recommend that people go out and, and at least try it? Absolutely. I think it is going to radically change really human society. Awesome. So let me pull up the Twitter and let's see uh, what we got here. Um, have you ever dealt with a Parvo dog? And, and actually, the question is from Dwayne Faber, dfaber84. Have she, has she ever dealt with a Parvo dog and then questioned her career choice? Parvo. So Parvo is interesting. So it's a, a virus that puppies get, and it is something that we vaccinate for. So this is one of the, the core vaccines. The symptoms that we see of these puppies coming in are bloody vomiting and diarrhea. And it usually has about a 50-50 prognosis whether or not they're going to make it. It's really sad for sure. Um, it also can be super rewarding when that puppy is reunited with its family and gets to go home. So it didn't make me question my career choice at all. Um, it it's really exciting when you get to reunite that family with that puppy. So we, uh, yeah, my uh, I have a family member that had a dog that developed parvo, and it was the saddest thing ever because yeah. she was in the vaccine window. It just didn't quite work out. And yeah. Um, all right, let's see here. Where do you think the vet practice will go in twenty years? And now I'm going to re-ask you that question. Now that you've seen VR, do you change your answer? Is it any different than what you thought? I think we kind of touched on it earlier, but I do think that the telemedicine is going to be a big advancement. Um, In human medicine, you can call in your doctor and have them prescribe medications now. And so using things like text message, having people, if there's a skin lesion, take a picture of that skin lesion and consult with a veterinarian and maybe they can prescribe something before, during, or after, or also to reassess how maybe a wound is healing, things like that. And I would imagine that in like rural communities where you don't have a vet because they're in the bigger cities, that that would be really, really helpful. So nationwide right now, there is a huge veterinary shortage. Oh, really? Everywhere. Um, So it's really, it's kind of a complicated 
reason, I think. Um, I think it has a lot to do with owners wanting uh, more advanced care for their pets. Maybe not as many people are going to veterinary school for whatever reason. Um, there are because it's so competitive and difficult to get into, maybe more people are going to try to become a human doctor or things like that. Um, but there is a really big shortage. There are, I think I have a list of like 35 or 40 clinics in the St. Louis area that are trying to hire a full-time veterinarian and can't find an associate. Wow. So there's, I think it's like less than 1% unemployment rate for veterinarians. So the, the job market is very good. Does it pay least. well then? It does. How how much does a starting out veterinarian you know like I'm I'm sure it's different depending on your location but is it is it eighty ninety somewhere in that range okay yes. interesting mm -hmm. so uh, Nate Yeager uh, wrote he wants to ask about the growth of pet insurance and then you had and then whether it was useful or not so we did talk about that one but Nate threw out a good question any other comments about the insurance oh here's an interesting one yeah okay so somebody else asked about mental health how do you handle your mental health Veterinarians also have mental health crisis on their hands, and I would love to know what they are doing to deal with it. A lot of organizations, veterinary schools, conferences, things like that, they talk about uh, mental health and mental wellness for the veterinary profession. I personally think, too, putting the responsibility in the hands of the owners to basically just be nice to your veterinarian and having people know that there is a... Um, a very high suicide rate in the veterinary profession. Is for that both. true among men and women? Mm -hmm. It is. Mm -hmm. For both wow. technicians and veterinarians. Basically, anyone in the profession is affected in some way. It's hard to have that compassion every day for people and be there 100% for the the client who, I mean, this is their family member. And if something maybe doesn't go uh, the way that, I wanted it to, or the owner wanted it to, or what have you. It's it's very easy to jump to blame the veterinarian and maybe say harsh things that it really does affect us as you know we're people too. Like it's it just being nice to your vet. <laughs> I, I I mean I really my heart goes out here because I watch the suicide rate of men my age having climbed up, and I don't know any man that doesn't either know somebody or have a close friend that lost a friend to suicide and mm -hmm. like a rise in it or a, a, or a profession dealing with it profoundly. Like that is something that your heart breaks there, right? You're it like, really does. So there is a Facebook group for veterinarians called not one more vet. And that stands for not one more vet in our profession. Are we going to lose to suicide? Because it has been such a widespread thing. I mean, every day we hear of losing another colleague, um, and you think like, we need these people to be able to care for our pets. Like the things that you're able to do, like the level of excitement and intensity and care, that's not in me for other people's pets or anything like that. So you are a rare, you know, gem. And so is your husband and all these other people, because if you don't do it, there's no, nobody else will do it. This is awful. Yeah. And even in talking about the veterinary shortage, nationwide that there's not nearly enough veterinarians to fill the job market and yet we are losing these colleagues to suicide i mean it really is heartbreaking um this facebook group has i think like almost twenty thousand 
veterinarians in it and people post and there's different hotlines that they can call and being connected and reaching out to colleagues and just being there as a support network when people need it because compassion fatigue and um, it's a real thing. I mean, it's, it can be really exhausting at times. So, Andrew Smart Barnes Klein wrote and asked, how ethical is owning pets in an urban environment? I think everyone should own pets. I, I mean, from the standpoint of not being able to seek veterinary care. I think probably it's more of the sense of you're taking these pets away from their natural. Imb- I, I think he's, he, I, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I think he's being a smart ass <laughs> because he's a farmer. He's out um, working in ag. And I think he's saying there are a lot of people living in the city that tell us how to, how to run our animals to be more natural. And yet I don't think having pets in urban environments is natural, hmm. but I mean, I disagree with that. I think pets are good in urban environments. I think they're good everywhere. I think, I mean, the approach that, cattle producers take towards their livestock is going to be a cow is not a dog is not a cat so the ranchers and the cattle people doing what their profession is i mean we need to support those those industries too i i agree i follow um a veterinarian called veal vet on instagram and she is similar in age to me she's a a um cattle veterinarian and she talks a lot about you know there's all this movement about like not eating meat and she just talks about how that's really not um having the impact that we want it to and that people should be consuming meat and they're really hurting the small uh rancher cattle rancher and these small businesses and supporting more you know monopolies out there Wow. And you, uh, there are a lot of people that listen to this podcast will be very glad to hear you say that. Um, although many of them would say that even the large uh, cattle producers are are pretty good. Oh, the, no, I, th- I totally agree. I think absolutely they are. <laughs> so uh, Carrie Cuspin um, wrote, how often do people want to provide medications or surgical treatments to their pet, but can't because they can't afford it? It's a very real. I mean, we deal with that every day. Um, there are different options out there for that kind of stuff. So like some clinics will have a angel fund set aside where if the owner can't afford the care that their pet needs, especially if it's like a foreign body surgery, you know, the dog ate a squeaky toy and it's definitely a premature death. Yeah. It's stuck in the intestines and needs to have surgery. You know, the surgery you're looking at 1500 to $2,000 a lot of times for the removal of this object. And if the dog doesn't have the surgery, it's going to pass away. There are different programs out there like an angel fund and just calling around to different shelters, clinics, doing a GoFundMe, um, just really exhausting all options to try to get the financing for that. And again, kind of thinking outside the box, I think is really good for for that kind of scenario. Uh, My good friend, uh, MB Flip Flops One, who's my friend Miriam from down in the University of Florida, who actually is the one that brought me down to the University of Florida, asked, said something, ask her about the not one more vet movement and why suicide in our profession has skyrocketed in the past years. I, we kind of have already addressed this. Do you see this tide stemming? Do you see anything that you wish people, uh, I mean, I guess you're talking about the hotlines and the. 
veterinarians take their work with them. Um, you know, we're supposed to get off at five and sometimes we don't get off till seven or eight because the emergency walked in as the last appointment of the day. And as a profession, we miss out on things, um, children's family members events and uh, birthday parties. And I mean, any vet you talk to has missed out on things because of their work. And I think having clear boundaries as a professional, saying what it is that you need, um, not being taken advantage by people wanting free advice from a veterinarian, sending a text or, you know, I mean, it's, it's really tough with, I it, bet that's gotta be hard. You've got like half friends that are like, here, check this out. And you gotta be like, Hey, I can't bring this work home with me. I've got to, yeah. And we talked about like the starting income uh, of of new graduate veterinarians. Well, the reality is the debt of classmates of mine, the average was $150,000. So if you think about kind of quality of life for the the professional, you know, you're coming out. They're buried under debt and then they're trying to do this. I mean, something has to change with our education system because – the amount of debt that people have that they're taking on when they're young and they choose to take it on. But the way that this is ballooned, I, I believe like it doesn't really matter how we got here. We've got to solve this problem. Yeah. And, and I'm not sure how you solve it, but it is really important that we pay attention to it because if you're talking about this debt is crushing them, we got to build a new university system or we got to build a new way, a new path for people to get on so they don't have to take on that much debt in order to be able to make it happen. It is absolutely crushing, crushing. You know, you graduate with all this debt and you're basically being kind of like slave labor. I mean, sure, are you making an income, but the interest rates are average 7%. So even though you're trying to, and it accumulates while you're in school. So all four years while you're taking out this debt, it's accumulating. And so even if you graduate with $150,000 of student loans and you're paying that off, you're never touching the principal. So most veterinarians, even 10, 20 years out of school, really have a significant amount, a debilitating amount of student debt, which is a huge part of quality of life. And I I mean, it's an epidemic across our country. And my belief is it started in 2002 when they said you can't declare bankruptcy on your loans. Mm -hmm. Because what happened when that happened was now a bank has a risk-free borrower. So they want to pump that borrower up with as much money as they want as they can because there's no doubt that they're going to get paid back for it and then the administration and all of the parts of the university say hey we can charge as much as we want because the banks will give them as much as they want and so price keeps going up the value of the education hasn't gone up and you have people that are trying to live what they were told was the american dream mm-hmm. for whatever reason they took on this crushing debt for what this return is but it's not a good situation. It isn't. And I, I personally believe it creates political instability because you start having a lot of people that are in debt and they don't have a way to get out of the debt, even with a, you know, an 80K salary. They start looking around for somebody that can help them. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's when things go sideways. Absolutely. Well, I've got another question for you. This is one I'm very interested to hear. This is Ryan Betancourt. And he wrote, what does she think of properly formulated plant-based diets for dogs? <laughs> kind of goes back to the grain-free thing. Right. Um, 
I'm a, I'm a big proponent of the big companies that have been around for 20, 30 years, and they do all the research. Um, in St. Louis, we have the Purina and Royal Canaan facilities, which if you've ever been inside of them, they're absolutely immaculate. And they put tons of effort into research and development of their products. So, I mean, there's always going to be a new fad. You know, I'm interested to see kind of what the next fad is. Like the home-cooked diets were a big thing, and now they're kind of tapering off a little bit. Um, there's always going to be a food fad. But so, I like sticking to the tried and true and the, what is backed up by research. I This is a very interesting topic because the guy that asked you that is a CEO of a company called Wild Earth Pets, which is trying to make vegan dog food. Mm -hmm. And Jared McDaniel, who I've mentioned earlier, and Dwayne Faber, who I talked about before, we were up in Canada at a beef uh, at a cattle conference. And I was talking about how I think the disruption that's going to come to the animal ag industry is that you may be able to synthesize proteins that used to be in meat and be able to put them in things like pet food and that will cut out a certain percentage of the market. Now, there are a lot of people that disagree with that, but I think that if people could buy synthetic dog food, like uh, what they call slaughter-free, they would. I think so, absolutely. It's not there yet, mm -hmm. but that's what people in the city would want, I think. Do you, you agree with that? I do, yeah. Well. That'll be interesting. Um, well, okay, so we have gotten to the end. There's a ton of people uh, uh, liking a bunch of the tweets that were out there, so we've answered <laughs> them all. I am so glad you were here. Thank, Thank you, you for trying on the VR set and then coming back to answer Twitter questions. This has been a blast. <laughs> Tell your sister I said hello. And uh, one more time, your Instagram handle is? Uh, Dr. Brittany Kennedy. Dr. Brittany Kennedy. Thank you. Thank you. Ah!